Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Andy, and you are listening to the Play for Keeps podcast, an initiative of the Ashland New Plays Festival here in beautiful Ashland, Oregon. Here at Play for Keeps, we are recording compelling new plays with world-class actors, along with conversations with playwrights, actors, directors, and we're sharing them here with you on our podcast, making theater accessible worldwide and on demand. We have created this series of podcasts to let you in on the front lines of new works for the stage. Today, we have a great conversation between Michael Gotch and Mark Lamos. Michael Gotch is a playwright, actor, director, and teacher. He is the founding member of The Rep, the professional resident company of the Roselle Theater for the Arts at the University of Delaware, where he also teaches and has directed, written, and performed in over 50 productions. His play, Starter Pistol, was a winner at the Ashland New Place Festival back in 2019 and was also a semi-finalist for both the 2019 Eugene O'Neill National Playwrights Conference, the 2019 Blue Ink Playwriting Award, and received a workshop at the Westport Country Playhouse. Starter Pistol is receiving its world premiere at The Rep beginning this week, Thursday, January 16th, and it will run through February 2nd, 2020. Starter Pistol will be directed by our next guest, Mark Lamos. Mark is an award-winning theater and opera director, producer, and actor with extensive credits, including Off-Broadway, Shakespeare in the Park, the Kennedy Center, Candace Stratford Festival, Guthrie Theater, the Yale Repertory Theater, the Old Globe, Metropolitan Opera, New York City Opera, and many, many others. He was the artistic director for the Hartford stage for 16 seasons, which under his direction won the 1989 Tony Award for Outstanding Regional Theater. He has been nominated for two other Tony Awards, was awarded the Connecticut Medal for the Arts, and won the 2016 John Houseman Award. He is now the artistic director of the Westport Country Playhouse. Now, without any further ado, an amazing conversation between Michael Gotch and Mark Lamos. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Gotch. I'm the uh, playwright of Starter Pistol, which was a 2019 winner at the Ashland New Plays Festival. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here with Mark Lamos, who is, and I'll let him introduce himself in a second, uh, the director of the world premiere of Starter Pistol, um, being performed at the uh, Delaware Rep uh, in Delaware at the, in residence at the University of Delaware. Yes, I'm Mark Lamus. I'm very uh, proud to be directing this play. I love it. Um, it's the second play I've, of Michael's and the second play I've been asked to do, so I'm very humbled by that. Um, I've done a lot of new work uh, over the course of my career. I've done um, a lot of classical plays as well, but uh, um, I am now the artistic director of the Westport Country Playhouse in Connecticut, and um, I freelanced quite a bit before that, and before freelancing, I was the artistic director for quite a while of the Hartford Stage Company, also in Connecticut. So I've had a long and very fruitful uh, history with working with living writers, and um, it's very exciting to, to be doing that with this particular play, which is interesting because of the fact that it's been written specifically for a group of actors uh, of whom Michael is one. That's where the resident ensemble players, the rep comes from. So we are dealing with a play that I have the good fortune to be working on a play that has been written by someone for specific people. And they are playing those roles and the roles fit them like gloves, needless to say. They're filled with challenges, but it's unusual in that um, these parts were were conceived pretty much with these actors in mind, as was uh, as were the roles, for the most part, in Michael's first play, Tiny House, which we did here last season. Yeah, and it's really, it's funny because I've had both the experience with this one, particularly a little bit with Tiny House um, when we worked on that last year, where it um, had another cast interpret it when we did a workshop of it up at Westport. Right. So <clears throat> it was my first kind of toe dip into having material that was in a sense conceived, if not literally and logistically for a group of actors to actually do, it was at least theoretically designed to have them in mind, mm -hmm. but then to have that opportunity, knowing that in the future we were going to definitely do the play with those actors to have the luxury of saying, let's see what this play sounds like in mouths, un 
like in some ways the ones you wrote them for. So we did that workshop. And then with this one, we ended up doing it not only at Westport, we did a workshop of Starter Pistol, this new play, but I had the fortune, a good fortune of doing it at Ashland with a group of completely different actors. So we had, we've ostensibly, it hasn't even, not even ostensibly, it has in, in truth been interpreted now by three different sets of voices. We had a workshop at Westport. Then I went out to Ashland and had an enormously productive and real in both places, Westport's workshop where we use primarily New York actors. And then in West in, in Ashland, where we were able to do it for a week with uh, primarily West coast actors and a completely different take as far as director goes and a different setting and a different audience. And then to come back here and do it with the people who I had initially conceived the piece with mm -hmm. was a real benefit mm -hmm. to have all three of those. And, and I think you can attest that both with a tiny house and with starter pistol that they were not fixed entities after those readings or those workshops. Like, did you notice? I mean, I imagine you did. I'm kind of, this is kind of a leading question, I suppose, but you know, we're in a, podcast, I guess. So we're leading each other into areas and realms to talk about, but that it did both of the plays changed. Yeah. Considerably. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, I think it was heartening for me, both with tiny house and with this play to, I mean, I, I really had a very positive response to both scripts the minute I read them. Right. And then we talked of course, uh, before you worked through another yes. draft. And then what's very heartening is that it it lived very well inside the mouths of this group of New York actors who were, I really didn't know. I think I knew a couple of them, right? but our casting office, Tara Rubin brought it together and, right. and they arrived in Westport and bang, we heard the play. Right. And I thought, well, if it holds up with these actors, it's certainly going to hold up with the company that he wrote it for. And that right. was the most heartening thing. I thought, well, we really do have a writer here, you know. I, right, it's, it's not, not like it's only going to love with exactly. Play, it's not going to but... work only if you say it exactly this way, yeah. and the room's temperature has to be seventy-eight <laughs> degrees, <laughs> and you have to have the door slightly open, and this light has to be shining on their face. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't predicated on some kind of requirement of you have the play works because all plays have to work that way, mm -hmm. you know. It, it it or if they don't, they don't because of something that's inherent in the writing. Usually, mm -hmm. that the buck has to stop somewhere there. If you think, well, wait a minute, this is only done well in a very, you know, there are delicate flowers, and you know, I would imagine. I mean, could you? I, this is an interesting question that I'm. I would answer too. So I'm not going to put you out there, but of a classic play that you can think of and it can be a contemporary classic too or modern classic there are you know there are delicate hothouse flowers and then there are hardy strains of a of a plant that can live in almost any environment what is a play that you think falls into one of those two categories hmm. that you've worked on that it takes a delicate touch this one only thrives with the right amount of everything mm -hmm. and this other play can survive tempests and Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it's because I don't know which one points to a better play, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. because I can think of a play like I will throw it out there getting started, like a delicate balance. We were talking about it yeah. last night. Yeah. It's not just in the title delicate. I think that play is a very difficult play to pull off mm -hmm. because you really need someone attuned to a number of different requirements and demands made by Albie. Mm -hmm to get it right because yeah. it can fall into a lot of different things that aren't right. Mm -hmm. Whereas a play like maybe without disparaging it, an, because I think there's a real genius in them too, is a Neil Simon play like the odd couple can survive. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Well, so I don't know if you yes, have any oh, other. I, I, I think you're right. I have never directed it, but I, I think that death of a salesman is probably one of those plays that will work in a variety it'll of work with a weak Linda Lohman. It'll work with a okay. Right. Uh, Willie it'll work with a group brilliant Willie and one yeah. son, not so good. It works. It's just solid, solid, solid writing. I think the crucible is the same. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you get to something like, um, uh, a couple of Miller's earlier plays, a memory of two Mondays, uh, which is a long one act. And that really needs, uh, very careful orchestration. Uh, yeah, to, I don't to, know that play, but I can imagine to pull off. Uh, yes, yeah. I don't think any of Edwards' plays uh, are at, in any way easy. Although 
the most popular, Virginia Woolf, who's afraid of Virginia yeah. Woolf, seems to hold work up no matter how it's done and who's cast in it. Well, yeah. it's funny because I would use that as maybe a little bit of a drop, a, a starting point for a, a little bit of a tangent, which is that I keep thinking of, of Hamlet, which is sure. the play that you and I first worked on together uh, with me playing Hamlet. And I always kind of think of it in now that we've worked on two plays with me as the the um, official playwright. Mm -hmm. That one was kind of our first foray. I would like a bit of a training wheels of the two of us working on a script that allowed us some leeway in not only interpretation, but literally text jiggering the text because everyone listening to this who has any idea of what theater and Shakespeare is knows that his plays not only survive it, but demand for certain runtime issues or interpretation or mm -hmm. conception issues that you don't do the entire script. So mm -hmm. it was kind of our first attempt at collaborating at the level of, do we need this speech? How many lines can we lose from this? Mm -hmm. Do we lose? And, and I, you know, admittedly, as the director, you had really the say in the whole thing with the cutting of that script. But I do remember being involved because whatever I was doing was showing you something and you would say, I don't think we need that. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think we can go yeah. straight to this. Mm -hmm. I know that it's a beautiful part of the speech, but the way we're doing this part of the we want to ramp it up to him leaving for England. We don't need to get bogged down in this thing yeah. right now for our version of yeah. it. So yeah. it was that, but I do think of Hamlet the same way that I think you think of, although I've seen some dreadful Hamlets, uh, you know, long, long mm -hmm. Hamlets, <laughs> but like you said about um, death of a salesman, yeah. that it almost, you you can, it survives yes. and almost thrives. I, I, I almost thinking about this the other day. I was like, there's a certain way in which I think that even in the worst Hamlet, ever i don't know if i've ever seen it or maybe i was it but there's always a there's always a there i would go I, it's kind of like that thing where they say if you put 12 mo monkeys in a room with 12 typewriters they will eventually come up with shakespeare's scripts yeah that there's a way in which i think that everyone who ever attempts hamlet however wretched the production is i would venture a hope and a guess that there's at least one line or moment that every production does better than any other production has ever done. Oh, I'm, I, do you know I what I mean? Absolutely right. That even in a con co community theater mm -hmm. production of mm -hmm. it, there's a certain moment that if the world had witnessed it, you would say they didn't get anything else right. But boy, did that show me what that moment was I supposed to be. I almost always feel that when I'm seeing a production of a Chekhov play. Yeah. I never see a full company of actors in a Chekhov play really firing on the correct cyl cylinders that really. So hard. Yeah. It's so difficult. But I will always walk away from the most flawed, badly cast production yeah. with some kind of insight. Um, yeah, but those go, wow. are those are definitely hot house plays. Those are oh the Chekhov plays. I mean, those are yeah, those are so uh, uh, subtle and nuanced, and so depend on the the way the actors need to think about being with each other in the space and being with right. Chekhov in this space. This right. wily playwright who you know is. Asking is, for something that's almost impossible to recreate right, every night. Nothing's really on the page. It's know. all underneath. It's all and underneath. And if you do too much of the underneath, then it becomes all it. about like yeah. melodrama yeah. and showing something. Yeah. So how do you hide it just enough or rub the edge of it just enough, like a charcoal drawing, mm -hmm. so that you don't show too much, but then you can't not show enough? Well, subtext, you know, thinking about your plays, Yeah. Um, you know, I always think of subtext beginning almost in a funny way with Chekhov. Yeah. Uh, there certainly isn't any subtext in Shakespeare. It's all, everybody tells you what they're <laughs> right. about. You know, I Iago will kill tells you, you now. what he's gonna yes, do. Richard going to do. Richard II and third talk yeah. about themselves yeah. endlessly. But in, um, but Chekhov, everything is underneath. Yeah. And um, you have these long sequences where say Astroff is talking about forests and looking at maps. Well, that's not what the scene is about. It's right. not about that. Right. Or uh, or uh, uh, Trofimov, I can't forget, I think I've got the character wrong, is is talking about writing, the art right. of writing to this girl who doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, you know, in Seagull, the two young people are talking about acting and they don't really know what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, and you yeah. have to find out what that subtext is that, that they will share somehow. Right. You decide something between. But them. in Starter Pistol, there's so much subtext. It's very interesting to work on because there are all these underneath levels 
where people are withholding information, where people are uh, hedging hedging their bets when they yeah. enter a fray to a certain extent in the in the in this in the conversation in the life of the day that's going on. There's this mystery going on upstairs with a boy that we, we you know, everybody is at the effect of, but we hardly ever see. Right. So he's almost, I mean, in a funny way, he functions for me. I'm rambling a bit, but like the baby in Virginia Woolf, you know, yeah. I mean, there's this, yeah. you almost think if we didn't, at one point I thought, should I suggest to you that we don't see him enter the house that it starts out where, yeah, which was originally all, what it was. That's right. They were. That's he, she, right. So, so for background, for those of you listening that <laughs> haven't don't know the synopsis, I mean, the play starter pistol is set. We'll do this real quick and then we'll get back to this point. Cause it's an interesting one is that it's, it's a set in an, in an unnamed, although you could substitute many names of a small Midwestern factory based town in America in this moment that is experiencing what most of America is experiencing, the death of the manufacturing base, the death of actually creating something. This, In this case, it's the steel industry and a, and a very blue collar family trying to navigate all through the paths on a very specific Friday night of their lives in the fall during deer season, because they are also a family that hunts. So it's tied in with a lot of issues. It's particularly the story of the mother, Karen, who has to navigate some troubling news about her son at school, some emerging troubling news about her husband potentially becoming addicted to painkillers for a, a back problem that has taken him out of work, and then the infusion of some characters from both their family and some strangers who come into the story to try to ostensibly help them get through some things. But then you find out that there's a lot more going on upstairs with this son character, Maddie, who you see intermittently through the play, but who you don't hear from. He never speaks, but he's the teenager upstairs and you hear him through the door with his music playing and you hear him go to take a shower and you see him a couple times come downstairs to just drop some dirty dishes off in the sink while other people aren't on stage. And he never really communicates but what we have is a story about a family communicating to the audience who that kid is via their lives in a strange way. I mean, don't do you find yeah, that? That's always my intention was that we he is illuminated by the people on stage the same way that awaiting for Lefty. We get to know who Lefty is mm -hmm. because of who's on stage talking about him, not because we ever yeah. see him or yeah. Godot, Godot or Godot right, yeah. or whoever you want to say. Tartuffe mm -hmm. is Tartuffe because the people on stage create him as that. So that when Mark is referring to this boy that you kind of aren't sure if you want to see him or not in the play, it initially started with the we never see him except at the very end of the play. Right. That was the one moment we saw him. Mm -hmm. Then I think you said to me, I think it would be good if we bookended the play. So we see him at the beginning and then we see him I at the end. I think you're right. Yeah. Then we decided, well, maybe one point in the middle, we need to see him too. So now we have three moments where he physically appears, but does not speak. Mm -hmm. He still doesn't speak, which I think is important, but that we did try a variety and, you know, we're in tech, so we can yeah, try others yeah. if we want to add or take away from, but it is a, it's a balance. It's a yeah. delicate, weird little thing to yeah. try to, how much is too much in the recipe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of their talk about this offstage, mostly offstage character is, as you say, informed solely by their perceptions of that character. Right. We He's, don't know who the real guy is. No, we don't. We don't at all. I mean, the father sort of, Dismissive. Dismisses his bad sports abilities. Um, his uncle uh, praises his skills as a rifleman. Yeah, as a uh, hunter, because it's his, very, you know, there's a big character in it called Walter, who's a deer head, but doesn't speak either, of course. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, a trophy. Yeah. But I mean, everybody and the mother is talking about him in, in more... Uh, in 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 more wide ranging terms, because right. she remembers him as a four year old, and and then his aunt is talking about him differently, much more as a teenager. So all the pictures we're getting of this silent, unseen, mostly unseen right. character, are coming from perceptions, and those perceptions, you know, the the beginning of those perceptions, I think, for the actors reside in a kind of subtextual uh, fountain of information that they're creating about their relationship with that son, with that yeah. boy. It's very interesting. Well, are, most people that I live with and around in life are, <clears throat> they're 
creations of my perception of them more than they are sure. objective anything. Yeah. You know, like my version of Mark Lamos, when I'm telling people about knowing you and working with you <laughs> is all about my version of it. Sure. Right. And not only the experiential version, I worked with him on X play and then we worked as director and writer on two other plays. And then we did Fleener, but also just as a personality, Oh, Mark's like this. And he <laughs> would say this and that. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes it isn't, yeah. you know, like you yeah. just will never know. And I think the play does talk about what we don't know that really lies in the heart or the mind of the person we think we know best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's about, parents trying to navigate a world in which fixed values of knowing they're in control of things is being questioned by forces they can't control mm -hmm. an economy that's going out of control regardless of what their wishes are or their attempts at helping it along or mm -hmm. hoping that the plant doesn't close or that we don't get laid off or that things will be better for our children than they were for us growing up. Well, one of the, the things, American dream. Yeah. You know? I mean, that makes the play, I think that keeps the play so um, dramatic. And, and there are these moments of tension is that, is that um, they, they have no control. Yeah. Uh, so they have no control, like most, like many, many parents have really no control of this person who's now 17 or 18, who came out of their womb and turns into somebody they can't speak to. They don't understand. Right. They feel any number of things about. Their teachers tell them things they don't get. Um, you know, right. and then they have, they're living in a world where jobs are falling apart. Uh, backs are being hurt by, you know, injuries yeah. and they they have no control really over almost anything. And that's one of the most exciting things I think to, in a play. And, right. and when you think about it dramatically, many dramas yeah. exist in that, in that, with that energy where the, the, you know, and you start with Greek tragedy where the gods are in control. Right. And they're going to control you. Artemis is going to make you do this whether you want yeah, exactly. to or not. Against your will, you're going to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Or Apollo or you name it. Well, or even Oedipus, like, you know, how far he goes to avoid the very thing. Absolutely. That then puts him right in the catbird seat of having done the thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I purposely avoided this or I'm purposely going to do this so that this doesn't happen. And it ends up leading right to that thing, which yeah. there is a little bit of this in this play with Karen. You know? I think the Greeks totally understood uh that they were in, that they had to cope with uh, powers that they called gods, right? Um, that they couldn't have any control over. All they could do was propitiate, and and, mm -hmm. and burn bulls and and goats and things like that. Right. But they were it, it, one of the most exciting things about Greek tragedy is when the characters realize they are <laughs> in the. In they are being driven by the desires of 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 a god, yeah. and they whether it's sexual, whether it's vengeance, whether it's you name yeah. it, they don't have control over their lives, and yeah. that's what makes that's what makes drama. The right? recognition of that is probably the most frightening thing about so many of those shows. When you see someone on mm -hmm. those stages, and sometimes it's triumphant. You know, when Medea yeah. gets away with it at the end. Yeah, you know, you know, there's so many different. There's a new one at BAM right now. I don't mm -hmm. know how that's going to go mm -hmm. over that new one with Rose Byrne and um, Bobby mm. Cannavale. Yeah. But it seems like it's more revision than it is an actual just adaptation. It seems like he actually wrote it. The guy wrote a script. I don't know who it is, but the, the playwright wrote a script that's modernizing, updating. But what I hope they didn't take out of it is that awful mystery of what that kind of deus ex machina is. Mm -hmm. Or in some of the plays, it's more of a Furies kind of appearance. Yeah. The thing that comes and ravenously devours what you thought might be saved, but now you know is not going to. There's a retribution, mm -hmm. you know, the retributional ending, which this play, Starter Pistol, definitely has, I, I wouldn't say aspirations, but definitely inspirations from that. Yeah. That, that character of Maddie, the unspoken son who comes toward the end in one horrifying entrance, mm -hmm. is a kind of throwback to or a nod to that appearance at the end of a Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. It's almost another worldly kind of thing. The way that when you hear about these events that happen in the world and to try to not give too much away, but I don't know that we can avoid it. When you hear about a mass shooting or you hear about a terrible act of 
of violence committed by a person that you otherwise would not have thought you know everyone interviewed always says i we couldn't believe this happened yeah, this yeah. is there's no way there's almost something awesome and i don't mean in a good way awesomely greek tragic about mm-hmm. it that there's an otherworldly supernatural force power to it that it's a it knocks the wind out of you mm-hmm. the the mystery of it and the the terrible uh truth of it for that person at that moment when they did the thing and mm-hmm. then usually don't live to tell the tale yeah but the, well greek tragedy did influence this play for yes. you right from yeah. the beginning you were you were thinking yeah. a lot about that i was thinking a lot <laughs> about you know i the natural world too because and that's totally you know whether it's the divine part of how the div- the divinities of greek tragedy work inside the natural world so you have images of bulls like you're saying the bulls or the we saw the hawk fly over the mm-hmm. mountain in the morning when i burned the embers and it portends that mm-hmm. clytemnestra will have a male child or whatever it is yeah, but that yeah. connection of the the land the actual natural world environment which was the in in my understanding or in, i like to think of in the greek world as the kind of outward manifestation of the gods you know their their earthly forms you'd have zeus show up as a swan or whatever so that connection between the human and the divine and then the natural in a play about a blue collar family working um in a world in which deer hunting was not only a necessity but kind of a family mythology with Walter being kind of this centerpiece of their living room, this enormous 18-point buckhead that has become the family's kind of heirloom from a previous generation and is handed down. And there's the story of this mystical beast who was, you know, killed. That, to me, became a, a central kind of connection with a, a one of Euripides' plays, Iphigenia and Aulus, which is not really a finished play and it's often not produced because it had a kind of tacked on ending that no one really thinks he actually wrote but there was a there's a there's just this event in it that kind of sparks the entire play which is that agamemnon kills artemis's sacred stag in her garden and then as a punishment she curses the family and the greeks to not have smooth sailing to Troy, Troy and therefore they have to sacrifice Iphigenia in order to get outside of the curse. Agamemnon's and, daughter. Exactly. So the play does not follow those plot lines at all, but the idea of a transgression against nature that at least could be viewed as a transgression, the play isn't finally, Starter Pistol is not finally a a, a treatise on not hunting or anti-guns or anything like that. I have my own personal political views, but I like to think that I'd rather have a piece of what aspires to be art, ask more questions than try to provide a public service announcement. But it does touch on that. Like, what is the transgression of killing this um, this magnificent beast that kind of offers itself up in the story in Starter Pistol that the man tells, the father tells about how this they bagged him? which is that he comes out of this mist and he stands proudly and he almost, it was almost like he was saying, take me. What does that transgression then portend metaphorically for a family on the ropes in economic ways? And that relies on things like luck with the lottery or tarot card readings that is also in the play, this idea of, so those are, I guess, the kind of bits of the Greek tragic, um, genre or tropes of the style of how they wrote those plays that I wanted to put in thematics, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, I'm not sure, but allusions to that kind of um, relationship between the natural world and, and fate and uh, things that you can't really put your finger on what the cause really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we do that in life. You know, the people that this play is about, I have I grew up with and I also still run into and my family has friends that are very much like it. And there's a sense in which even though they're not gods or they're not certainly not gods, but they're not kings and queens like they were in Greek tragedy, they seem uniquely suited to play the roles of the Hecubas and the Clytemnestras and the Agamemnons and the Medeas today, because they're the ones who are most seeming to me tempest tossed in all of these issues that mm-hmm seem to be thrown down by the gods. Mm-hmm. God, look at our luck. 
oh, if we just won that lottery, oh, if, if, if you know, we're going to go to church and pray for this to happen, mm-hmm. or that they're at the mercy of so many forces pulling one way or the other, that they seem so connected to those grander domestic scenes in things like Euripides or Sophocles, mm-hmm. which were also just at the end of the day, just families trying to make it through the night. Yeah. yeah the absolutely. same way, even mm-hmm. if they had a crown on their head. Or, absolutely controlled Thebes or whatever they're in charge of, they still went and slept in a bed with the other person and wondered if they were cheating on them mm-hmm. or why are they giving me up for that younger princess? Mm-hmm. Or why does he think that, Oh my God, I'm his mother. You know what you I know, mean? Though the, the, the really exhilarating thing I think about Greek tragedy is that you, I think when it's performed right, mm-hmm. you don't burst into tears you you have what's known yes. as catharsis. I mean, there's Medea standing on stage with the corpses of these two little boys that are her children. Yeah. That's the penultimate scene. And why is that exhilarating rather than crushing? Crushing. And, yeah. It's for the viewer. Right. It's there's it's like you said, awesome. It's thrilling. There's a thrill that goes through you. However maybe, horrible it is. Yeah, yeah. That maybe makes your hair stand on end. But you are you are somehow able to dispassionately identify without going to a place that causes you the other kind of identification where you do cry you know good truthful tears at certain things that you see on stage or in film what have you right. certainly in real life but in greek tragedy it's that exhilaration it's like someone's opened a door and this marvelous icy yeah. cold air yeah. has just invigorated the whole house you know and you go out of it kind of blown away by the fact that you exist that yeah. you have you know that you the you have no control and that, that these choices are possible for people yeah. in a real sense and that you might be as horrible as it is to contemplate can identify in some strange, horrible mm-hmm. way. Well, people talk about karma, and that's not far off from, I mean, karma is a great religious idea right. in certain cultures, and it's not far off from what happens in so much Greek drama, the one you just described, where the Agamemnon has to take the, the life of his daughter because of something he did. That's his karma, right? You right. say. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, Electra convinces her brother to murder their mother. Yeah, which is one of the most extraordinary moments in all of theater, uh, yeah. and of course, like in Starter Pistol, the murder happens off stage. Exactly. Um, exactly. So that the the heightened tension of watching Orestes walk into that house, yeah, knowing what's going to happen, or in the in the in the Aeschylus play, watching Agamemnon come home with Cassandra. And Clytemnestra invites him into the house to take a bath. To take a bath. <laughs> I mean, you know? what a Hitchcockian kind of <laughs> way is. of thinking about it. It you know? is. But you just see him walk in the door, and you see the door close, and you go, "Oh dear." Yeah. But I mean, even yeah. talking about I it, the I water's get goosebumps hot. because of the feeling that it engenders in an yeah. audience to to watch it. You know, it's not yeah. like. In a, in a way, it's not like watching a horror movie where you're going, "Oh, oh, don't open that door! Don't right. open that door! There's right. an axe murderer in there!" No, no, right. no. This yeah. is this inevitable. There's an inevitability yeah. to it. It's a dawning, yeah. and that is some part of Starter Pistol. Is at least in in intention, which is always distinct from execution. You know, we are we're just attempting something, yeah. mm-hmm. and it it's great because we that's what art is is like exploring aspiration. You know, people say pretension's a bad word, and I always think of pretend. You know, where would artists be without their pretensions? <laughs> yeah, right. It's just a it's just a pejorative way of saying I have aspirations. Sure. So for me, it's fine. <laughs> I think we should reach for it, and if we don't make it, who cares? It's yeah. just a play. Yeah. But the idea of that dawning inevitability is a big part of this play. That that uh, for me, the best, not only plays but also movies, I would say, and probably in some ways novels when I read them. The best feeling I feel like I could give as a writer or as an actor, I'm always kind of endeavoring to do this, especially in plays like this or in Greek tragedy or in Hamlet's and things like that, is to somehow surprise the audience with something they were starting to guess anyway, mm-hmm. or vice versa. Get surpri- Have them surprised by something that in retrospect they knew all along. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. feeling that you want in an audience of inevitable but it still produces the dramatic effect of a jolt to their mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. But that when they think about it a little bit, they go, 
I knew that all along Mm -hmm. because it was in me in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I recognized that in me or that's true. I could add it up, but I didn't even know I was adding it up. Mm -hmm. And while it was shocking at the end, it was also kind of like, that's what had to happen. It's satisfying. There's a satisfaction, even as morbid as that sounds in a play like a Medea or a starter pistol or whatever. There's a culminating moment of, the sum of all fears or the sum of all the information you've been given finally, like in a great whodunit, you realize you knew who it was the whole time Mm -hmm. or you knew what it was going to be, but you were either peeking through covers to watch it unlike a horror, but like a horror film or unlike a horror film, you're, you're, there's a kind of exhilarating drive toward that inevitability that only afterward, when you really think about it, you go, wow, that's something true about human nature. That's something true about me, whether I want to admit it or not. And it certainly was true about that character that I just watched do that horrible, horrible thing Mm -hmm. and feel like there was no other choice. Mm -hmm. Like that's how it had to end. Mm -hmm. Of course, now that I think about it, that's how the play had to end. Even though I would not have thought that in the first scene, but then it started to make sense. So it's very interesting that way. You know, how did you know, you know, to change the subject a bit, but how did you suddenly turn to writing after after a very successful career as an actor, which you still have? Right. What triggered it? Did you did you just think, I, I think I can do this or I have an idea for a scene or did well, you start with lines of dialogue? It was interesting. It? Well, I've always written. I mean, I, I, I don't won't say I've always written like a lot like I don't have you know, a trunk full of manuscript or anything like that in my closet, but I've always written. And when I went to school, um, for undergrad, it was at the university of Chicago for English and philosophy. So I didn't go to my undergrad, um, for, uh, theater. I wasn't a theater person. I wasn't an actor, um, previous to, uh, this thing happening in Chicago, which I won't get into biographical things, but I got a, a show in Chicago, Chicago Shakespeare Theater that we had come from New York, the Shakespeare's R&J, mm-hmm. the four-person R&J yeah. Juliet, yeah. and it was the second production outside of New York, and Joe Calarco was looking for four guys from Chicago to be the second cast of that show, open the Navy Pier Shakespeare Theater with it, and he wanted untrained but smart guys And just out of like a kind of, you know, we talk about the gods and fate, knew a friend of a friend who said, you should read for this. And I ended up getting it. Mm -hmm. So that's how I became the actor. Mm -hmm. But at the University of Chicago, I was writing about the academic side of writing, which was about my big thing was gothic um, melodrama. And I did my honors thesis on Dracula and Jean Baudrillard and the female gaze and uh, all this, you know, lit Mm -hmm. crit stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was fascinating to me to break down narratives and see how at least I thought they worked, both political analysis and gender analysis and economic analysis, and then also just structural analysis. So I was always fascinated with how stories get told. And then to make the leap to actor, you end up becoming kind of a, um, what do they call that? A self-taught artist in the sense of how to put a story together. You know, like I, what didn't, you're not a writer, but you're in the mix of how to put a story together as an actor. So you're kind of a layman version. You're learning like a layman would about what makes the story work. You're an autodidact. Exactly. And then you, and then I just started to think in the last few years, I have some things that are coming into my head about people that uh, people that are making up you know, some voices, not like I'm not, you know, a multiple personality. Uh, <laughs> I don't think yet, although the world right now is turning me into it more and <laughs> yeah, more daily. Um, but I, it just started to hear these things that were like, you know, what if I told a story about this? I think this would be interesting. And now knowing a lot about what I know about to the extent that I know it about how I think plays work as an actor and dabbling in directing a little that, how can I structure and just set it as a challenge for myself? You know, I did an interview somewhere else for Ashland, I think, or I was at a talk back at the Ashland New Play Festival. And someone asked, you know, how do you start writing a story? And I said, for me right now, and maybe it's because I'm just a naive early career playwright who's had enormous grid fortune, partly because of Ashland New Play Festival, in large part to you, Mark, and 
the rep here at Delaware and, and other theaters who look and have given me great encouragement. But I, I think of myself as like, if I had a mantra for the writing, it would be, I, I always tell a story I'd want to hear myself for, to myself first. And it's kind of like, I don't care about how it resonates for anyone else right now. How would I, as an audience of one, what would I like to hear? How would I like to hear it? And from whose mouth would I like to hear it issue forth from? From which, you know, from whose mouth would I like to hear it issue? And that's where the characters come in. And it's not like, you know, because I, I have other friends who are writers and, you know, Teresa Rebeck and even people who are really well established say that, you know, you can get into real funks and, and blocks about writing. And I'm lucky, knock on wood, not to have found that yet, because you start to um, have a lot of expectations put on yourself and the industry about what people want to hear. Right. So it becomes about, well, I can't do that again, or I can't do it that way because there was a play last year about that, or I can't repeat myself. And then there's all this insecurity about who am I writing for and will anyone want to produce it and who's going to want to act in it. And I need to win in that award. And I wish I could be a writer like X person. And maybe I should write more like that. For me, it's more like, um, I just want to tell a story to me. And if anyone else wants to join in on it, yeah. If it resonates for anyone else, then that's great. But I was prepared, I honestly will say this with no false modesty, of writing both Tiny House and Starter Pistol and letting some people read them and hearing, hey, some there's some potential there. Keep working, but not have anything happen with them. Mm -hmm. Just in, It would have been enough for me to say, I set the challenge for myself to write a play like Starter Pistol that has a certain challenge in telling a story in a kind of delicately challenging way. And if I read it after I've written it and say, I think I kind of did it for me, it would have been okay. It wouldn't have been, I'm glad that it's doing what it's doing now. Mm -hmm. But if it hadn't, I think keeping that perspective and just saying, I'm just going to write what comes to me and makes me excited about listening to it or reading it or writing it, set myself a challenge with a story and some characters, and then let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. If someone picks it up and says, I think it's the best thing since the seagull, that's wonderful. If someone picks it up and says, Ooh, geez, don't quit your day job. That's okay too. <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's almost like journal writing for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Interesting. So now ask me that in five years, if I continue writing, if I might mean, certainly intend to, and I've started writing a few other little things that are going to maybe turn into bigger things. Another play that these two plays are part of a trilogy, Tiny House and Starter Pistol. So there is a third one and I'm kind of toying with some sketches of outlines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in five years, maybe if I write a few more plays and I get a couple more productions, I may be a lot more, you, you come ask me and I'll be just as neurotic and insecure and have none of this supposed like serenity about i'm only writing for me you know i'll be telling you like, like did you read that play by, yeah. i need to i got screwed over again by my agent and oh i need more money i need to write some more television scripts and whatever but i'm hoping that isn't the case yeah. because i think that the best work from anyone comes with a with a with the right amount of this is going to sound like a wrong word for it, but I really do think it a, a contempt for your audience in a certain way, a kind of I don't really care, not not aggressive contempt, mm -hmm. but a willingness and an ability to say, "This is my vision. This is it. Yeah. This is what it is." Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember that story you told me about. I I, I think it, it's fascinating. I thought of it this morning, and it kind of fits with this a little bit. Is when you were working with Albie on, I think it was the revival of of Seascape on Broadway. Mm -hmm. It might be correct me, but you said something about. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase a little, and then I'll let you tell the real story of that. You guys had directed a, a speech of one of the actors a certain way, and he said, "Tell the story." Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, yes, like he yes. said, it's all wrong. It's he was watching wrong. a run through of Seascape, and at it was produced by Lincoln Center theater but we were at the booth theater in new york and um i had done it first in hartford uh with with other actors except for george grizzard who was playing this part right and so we were doing a run-through for edward and george did this moment where he screams he just the character screams he bellows angrily and edward is sitting right next to me on my right and my assistant, Evan Cabinet, a very canny guy, um, I said to Evan, 
while we're doing this run through with Edward here, I want you to stay right on the script with your <laughs> finger on the line. Sound is so that right. anything that Edward tells me is wrong or right, I can look at you and you'll show me what his stage direction actually says. Right. Because Edward was fanatic about making sure that his vision was going to right. always find its way to every production. Right. So anytime he uh, a production opened before it went to Dramatis Play Service or whatever, he literally wrote a stage direction. If you read his plays, there's a stage direction line reading for almost every yeah. tentatively with passion, etc. Right. So this line is screamed and Edward turns to me and says, it's way too loud. That's insane. That's insane. <laughs> and I looked at Evan and I looked at the stage direction of Edwards and I said, um, you say here, uh, what did it say exactly? Your stage direction says, with screamed with the pain of an animal. Right. And Edward said, it's the memory of a pain of an animal. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. I mean, he could get out of anything, right. but uh, but it, it was right. so interesting that yeah, this that 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 stage direction may have been put there because the original actor who played it, Barry Nelson on Broadway, couldn't do that. So right. Edward thought subsequent productions, I've got to have this moment to make it be what it needed to animalistic be. Animalistic rage yeah. on the part of this man, you know. Right, and, uh, right. So there it is. Right, forever. Right. <laughs> Okay. So anyway, there was a, there was one, there was another one that you said, I think it might've been you, it might've been someone else about Edward Albee that you pointed to a stage direction at one point with him and said, or an actor was, you, you said, we can't figure out why he is this. Why is he nervous? I don't mind pick nervous. Mm -hmm. And you said, he said to you, um, I, I don't, I, he just is. He just is. He had no explanation that would help an actor who's always looking for the logical reason why a human being, which, hint, by the way, humans aren't logical, often emotionally. Right. But the playwright didn't have. He doesn't. Sometimes we don't. We can just tell you. I know this from two play experience, not just with you, but anyone who reads the plays and asks me, why is this? Why do you have this stage direction of her being scared of this or whatever or him saying it in a way that is like this? And sometimes I have to say, yeah, it doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. but it is <laughs> because yeah. that's yeah. what surprises an audience. If the audience is only getting the feedback loop of expectation and example of that expectation, yeah, this is how I would have reacted. This is now she or the actor is showing me that is a logical thing to do. Mm -hmm. If we're always trying to meet out logic it's antithetical to moments like in Medea, where you say at the end of the play, oh, it kind of surprised me, but I also know it was inevitable. Or I identify with the audacity of a choice that isn't necessarily logical because that's yeah. where drama and surprise to me, mm -hmm. not through a whole play, because otherwise then you just have an absurdist play, which is good in its own way, sure. but it's not yeah. the same thing. I remember Edward saying, I, I can't remember the play that he was working on, but he, he said one day, I can't stay long in rehearsal because... Uh, I was writing last night and a new character entered the play. Uh -huh. And I said, well, how did, how <laughs> well, did that happen? We need happen? to know this yeah. because we're going to have to cast this guy. I, well, I, you know, I said, how did that happen? And it, it was the play he was working on apart. From oh, not the one, the one you were, we were in. Thank on. God. Yeah. Like no, 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 the night before script. opening. It was a new and, play. Uh, new it, character. It was a new play that he was writing and he was about halfway through it. And he said, someone else has entered. Yeah. As if he was in a dark room and someone came through the door that he couldn't see. Yeah. And I said, who is it? Not knowing what the characters in the play. He said, it's it's either a lover or a brother of the primary young man. Yeah. I said, oh, OK. And I said, how why did it why did you add that character? He said, well, I didn't really add it. He started to talk. Oh, yeah. See and that? I just yeah. he said, frankly, I'm just listening at this point. Right. And it it had nothing about it the way he said it that that was at all. um what's the word I'm looking for? Pretentious or yeah, uh, it was mysterious. just like, I really he was an artist a... and he was hearing a voice and he was trying to let the voice speak, not get in the way of the voice. And I think in many ways, one of the things that makes his plays so powerful because they are so filled with strangeness, like all the yeah. best work. Um, they, there are these things happening in Edwards plays that, that no one knows why, you know, there's, you can't yeah. sort of put your finger on it, but that's what makes them so exhilarating. But I think, you know, just to, to, to back up what I just said, a point that I just was making, I think all great art is strange. I mean, there's yeah. a strangeness 
to whether it's a you know whether it's a painting by Titian, whether it's a, a, a you know a piece of music by Bruckner or even Mozart, it's strange. You know, Shakespeare yeah. plays are strange things. Strange yeah. things happen in them. You know, uh, strange people people them. Yeah, uh, unknowable things happen to them. You know, and you you sort of think we get we, because we work in the theater so much. We think we know what that is. We know. Oh, we, I know what Hamlet is. I know what Twelfth Night right. is. I know what Romeo and Juliet is. Yet when you get inside those plays and you start working on them, you think this is this is the crazy ass moment of all time. Right. What is going on? Yeah. You know what is happening yeah. here that he's created? Yeah. Whether it's Lear dragging on, you know, carrying the body of his youngest daughter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or or Othello listening to the least trustworthy man around him. Yeah. You know? And everyone in the audience is saying, don't, we just heard from him. He's going to. <laughs> yeah. No. But and, I mean, the I think the great, great art is that it's, 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 it's unusual and it shakes your head, whether it's a, whether it's a Picasso painting, whether it's a, a you know, as I said, a piece of music, it just, if it's not that, it doesn't have a place in the world. It can go by and be okay, you know, and you'll yeah. forget about it. But the really great things are unusual, strange things. Yeah. And and I think this play, Tiny House, I mean, the best plays I've worked on, whether by living playwrights or dead playwrights, have been, there's, a, there's an oddness about them that makes you have to rethink the way the world works to a certain extent, you know. Exactly. You know, it's funny that you bring up the music thing, because I was just thinking about that, too, that that for me, the best art really subverts expectation, first of all. Absolutely. And yeah. also leads you to a place where you it's not just about doubling back and going aha to you. It, that's that's kind of the prosaic way of saying what I'm saying, but it subverts expectations but it also allows you to kind of yearn for something and then realize why what you were yearning for was not what they ended up giving you in a good way. And and mm -hmm. the example that I would use is I was listening to not the most subtle of composers, but in my opinion, but he does it nonetheless in the finale of, I was just listening to it in my car because I have it on my, my, my Apple music where you can mix every kind of music in the world and it's at your fingertips, but the finale of Swan Lake. So we're talking Tchaikovsky and he's not, like I said, the most subtle of composers. It's not like we're talking about Stravinsky or anything, not that he's subtle either, but mysterious, not, you don't think of Tchaikovsky as particularly mysterious in the way we're talking or strange mm -hmm. but there's this moment in the finale where it's rising up and rising up and you know in the story where we're at where at the white swan is going to do the leap of death and it's going to be the mm -hmm. very end and there's this moment where he's bringing all of the orchestra into it and we get this very lyrical phrase i would have to play it for anyone listening to know but they might know where this is where he doesn't complete it that he does this declining series of, I don't know, I'm not a musical uh, uh, expert, but a declining series of kind of chords and strings that are declining and you want it to, it's almost a rhapsody. It's a very lyrical moment, but then he closes it off before it completes. And when I listen to it, I always think, oh, I could listen to it. I wish he would, I wish I he kept going there mm -hmm. and not... But then you realize that ending it there and leaving you wanting and thinking the expectation would be that that would be a theme we would continue hearing for a while is exactly why he shouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. Because it allows us not only to complete that phrase, but it haunts us because we're not sure what, what it had to end. Now, we know in that story why it ends. She dies. The, that's the swan why dies. That's why it stops. Right. Yeah. But yeah. so it, there is a very literal reason for it. But there are things like that in other composers that I've listened to where there's a moment where you go, they they linger on something and then abruptly they change it into something completely else. And you go, no, stay with that. It's mm -hmm. so pretty. But mm -hmm. if they had stayed with it, it would have just been a pedestrian pretty song. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. had to be mutated in a way that surprised your expectations or was strange well, or the oddity of they just gave you enough yes. of the taste and they didn't labor it because then it just becomes kind of pop commercial. That's you know? the, that's exactly the principle behind the 25 minute finale of Mozart's marriage of Figaro, the first act. Uh -huh. It is 25 unstoppable minutes of mad incidents, just 
Com- right, coming together, all these things, falling one thing on top of the next, on top of the next. Some of it comic, some of it awful, some of it uh, embarrassing, some of it, and and constantly changing as the keys change and the notation changes. When I was doing it, I did a production recently, and I remember the conductor as we were working on it. Just we were doing a musical rehearsal without my staging. He said, "Just remember, ladies and gentlemen." that your participation in this 25 minutes of music is one of the most glorious chances you're going to have in a lifetime of living to just make this sound. And he was right. Absolutely right. And it's the scene. If you know the play Amadeus, it's, it's the, Uh it's the description. Mozart has a description of it. Peter, Peter Schaffer, where he says to the emperor, what it's about, what he's going to do. And, and the emperor says too many notes, Mozart, too many right, notes. Right. It is too many notes. It's right. like life, you know, but it's that's what makes it with it, but that's what makes incredible. it so amazing. And, and just as you're sort of moving into a phrase for the, say the second or third time, you think just repeat it one more time. I love this. Right, it's so beautiful. Right, right. The door opens and the gardener comes in done. with a broken flower yeah. pot or, right. Or, you know. <laughs> it subverts your expectation. Completely. It says, no, you're not going to get that fun, that easy closure that you were looking for, or that repetition that is comforting to you. You're right. going to have to come see it again. If you want to hear that phrase. Again. And you have to be continually you know, surprised you have to be, you have to be open to the fact that life is not predictable and mm-hmm. that you're not going to get the thing you expect to happen. Yeah. But anyway, I, we're going to wrap it up here cause we have to go to rehearsal, we but it, it, yeah, oh, in like uh, yeah, you know, minutes. 25 minutes, but um, it's just wonderful to work with you, Mark, again on a play. And we get to do it again this summer with I tiny know. house, yeah, which is going to yeah. be at the Westport playhouse in June as part of their season after having done it here last year. And Indeed. it's just a nice, um, it's just great not only to have this kind of a discussion, but just as someone who I consider both colleague and friend to have us work on something like this in what, you know, whether you're for what's going on in the world right now, or you're against what's going on in the world, or you're mixed up bag of it, everything that's going on. It's just nice to have a sense that you can still come together and work on this kind of thing. A, it a is. piece I, of something, whether you want to call it art or you want to call it, we're working through something yeah, that yeah. I think does t- speak to something going on right now. It's also, I feel, you know, the best experiences I have in the theater I have the feeling you feel the same way is when like the two of us, I think we could say almost anything to each other. Yeah, And it's not. And uh, because we're moving towards, we both kind of understand each other for the most part. Right. And we both understand what we want from the, yeah. the piece. And we both listen to where we're, where yeah. we're headed and watch together. Yeah. There's a very, uh, heartening feeling about our collaboration, especially now that we're going to be going back to your first play in a few months. Um, And I know it's going to be, at least my work on it is going to be so informed by my work on this play, your second play. Exactly. And you're going to Uh, say like, oh, now I can see some kind of thread that we might want to pursue in this first one because I now know how this kind of thing works. But it's true. I mean, you know, there's different versions, there's different ways of working and having any kind of disagreement or whatever, but as long as it's done in good, you know, we, we just have a really good faith Mm -hmm. sense of it. I think, I think you can say to me, I don't think it should be that. (laughs) And I can say to you, Mark, it's going to fucking be that. Mm -hmm. And it isn't coming from a place of proprietary or, or defensive in the worst way, which is I'm protecting something and I don't want your, it's, I'm going to listen but I still disagree for this reason. There's a passion about the disagreement that is rooted in wanting what's best for the story being told, not I need to be the one or yeah. as the writer, yeah. I need to have this way. There's but never also, anything like that. I mean, that. my job with a new play is always to, is always to uh, uh, f- allow the writer's vision, not allow it, but help the writer's vision to right. be shaped. Right. And I can disagree all I want with this or that, but frankly, it's, Right. It's his or her right. thing that I'm putting on stage. So if if right. if you want this moment to go that way, if yeah. I disagree with it, I'll disagree with it. But I'm also I also am sh- sure enough of myself as a director to know that I can give you that moment, yeah, and I can do it honestly, yeah. And then we can look at it together and say, yeah, look, you were right, or you know, I was right, or I was, right, I was wrong. Or God, I was really wrong. Was that, oh, or... it's a terrible <laughs> idea. Why did I say that, Mark? <laughs> do your thing, or vice versa. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow, that does work. Huh. But Who'd also, I think with this company, it's so unusual and, and heartening the way they solve so many problems on their own. Yeah. 
and their way of working is so organic that yeah. very often the best thing I can do is just to sit back and let them solve a couple problems and then and move then in and edit it just a bit or touch it up here and there. Yeah, just finesse push it, it slightly. And that's an unusual thing to have for any director, I think, unless you've worked with actors many, many times over, you know. Yeah, because you're usually working as if you're all strangers who just got off the train. Sure, yeah. yeah. You've and seen them once at an audition. That's not the case here. And you're hoping to assuage everything, egos and yep. feelings and get them on board to your vision and mm -hmm. blah, 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 you know. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, we're going to go up to rehearsal. Thank you, um, Playing for Keeps, or Play for Keeps, and um, uh, Ashland New Play Festival that that really was instrumental in helping bring along Starter Pistol to where it is now. And we'll keep you updated and uh, wish you all a good uh, 2020. And come see Starter Pistol if you're on the East Coast. It's running uh, January 16th through February 2nd. And if you are in Connecticut, uh, uh, Westport Country Playhouse is producing Tiny House uh, June 7th through, I don't know, the end of June, yeah. somewhere, you know, maybe July, first week think, of yeah. July. Mm -hmm. So uh, Godspeed and good luck, and uh, we'll talk to you on the other side. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the amazing conversation between Mark Lemos and Michael Gotch. Play for Geeks podcast is a production of the Ashland New Place Festival here in beautiful Ashland, Oregon. This episode was produced by me, Andy Neal, with art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis and written content edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Ashland New Place Festival Artistic Director Kyle Hayden, Associate Artistic Director Jackie Apodaca, and Fall Festival host playwright Beth Kander. Visit us online at ashlandnewplace.org or playforkeeps.org. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Help us spread the word. Like, follow, share, and subscribe. I'm your host, Andy Neal, and until next time, remember, want to play? Play for keeps. <laughs>